The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Most of our regular listeners know that we have been not we have not been talking about healthcare issues per se, as the name Healthcare Insight might imply. In fact, we are looking at the health of the United States, domestic policy, foreign policy, and in recent uh, weeks and last few months, we have uh, reached back into history and talked to some of the great thinkers and minds of our time about what they thought was going to happen and tried to contrast and compare it to what's actually happened. And it's been very insightful, I think, for me and many in the audience to uh, look back in that uh, earlier times of 20, 30, 40 years ago. And today I want to do that again with one of, I think, the great minds, uh, Milton Friedman, an economist, a philosopher, a professor. He's mainly known for his economics. And for those of you who haven't read the book Free to Choose, it is probably the premier book that every conservative ought to read about the economy and how money flows and the problems and issues of federal government. Now, if I have any um, uh, criticism of uh, Milton Friedman is that he is a pretty pure, what I might call a libertarian. Uh, he is very much uh, against any kind of a big business or big government uh, actions. And he's got great arguments around that, and I want to present some of those. I'm a little bit more of that there are certain areas of government would be helpful to get involved in, but he's very anti-establishment, and he makes good points. And I want to talk about, for example, his myth-busting, if you will, of many of the things that some of us just accept automatically. And let's start with uh, something like the, um, the Great Depression. And uh, most of us really don't know the background and history of how that started. We just know that there was a Great Depression and that um, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, uh, helped us get out of that. That's the scenario that is typically out there that we we learn in our school and our education and sort of the storyline of the media. But Milton Friedman takes another look at that, especially the beginning of the Depression, and he feels that government has very much uh, implemented policies like they do today where the opposite occurs or the unintended consequences occur. And the opposite of what the government thinks it's doing is what actually occurs. So I want to start with that premise so that everybody listening, if they're not familiar with Milton Friedman, can sort of understand uh, his basic philosophy around being sure that government only does those things it's supposed to do under the Constitution and is very limited in its powers. So let's ask uh, Dr. Freeman to come in and talk to us about the Great Depression and how it may have been started and what, in his opinion, uh, happened in the aftermath of the Great Depression that we then had to deal with in the 1930s. The Depression was caused by government. It was a result of bad government. It was a result of government actions not working the way they were intended to. The Federal Reserve System was established in 1914 for the purpose of preventing things like the Great Depression. And yet, its existence was responsible, in my opinion, for the depth of the Depression. So that you cannot look at the after effect without looking at what came before. 
So I hope our audience gets an initial flavor of the the man and his concerns about an overreach of government. The government sets up organizations to do good, and it turns out that they don't do so good, and sometimes they do great harm. So I want to continue with this segment just a little bit longer, talking about his philosophy of economics and government, and talking about what happened after the um, uh, the Depression. Now, he was against some of the policies that led up to the Depression, points back and says, no, it it wasn't the failure of the marketplace. It wasn't a failure of capitalism. It was a failure of government that had set up an institution to prevent things like the Depression. But in fact, uh, the Federal Reserve Board helped to cause the Depression because the way they constricted money supply when it should have been expanding during that time of need. So let's go on and see how he addresses the concerns or his support for the things that happened after the Depression to try to get us out of it. Was he against big government, uh, the programs of FDR? Was he against the New Deal? Let's find out what he says about that. Given that you made the terrible mistakes that led to the Great Depression, I have never criticized the remedial actions that were taken immediately thereafter to help the people who were so badly hurt. That was a desirable thing, and it was a reaction to it. The bad things about the New Deal were not those. The bad things about the New Deal was not the Works Progress Administration, which offered temporary jobs, the Civilian Conservation Corps. That was not the bad things. Those were good things. The bad things about the New Deal were the more permanent changes it introduced in the institutions of the country. Okay, so Dr. Friedman, as I understand what you're saying is that you are against big government organizations that have a good intention, but inevitably many of them fail in their intention and actually cause harm. Once the harm is done, there is a role for government to come in and sort of clean up their own mess if they can actually do that. But tell us a little bit more about your philosophy of private market versus government agencies, because your concern, as you expressed it, is not that the New Deal existed to help people get out of the Depression, but that it created new governmental institutions. And as you have said, and that we have seen throughout even uh, current times, that once an institution is established, it's very difficult uh, to get rid of it. It develops its own life. It hires tens of thousands, if not uh, 100,000 or more employees. It, it carves out its own mission. It's hard to actually kill a governmental agency at any level of government, whether it's it's local or state or federal government. It just will exist forever and take on a new mission if its old mission is completed or if it has made a mistake, it never seems to go out of business as it would in the private market. Is that the way you see it as well? If a government, if a private organization makes a mistake, does things badly, it will lose money, and it will have to go out of business. If a public organization does things badly, and governmental organization does things badly and makes bad mistakes, it will be expanded. It will be expanded because they'll say, well, it's all because we just didn't have enough resources to it. Or else it will be left to stand and another organization will be set up to do what it was supposed to do. This is the example that I wanted our audience to hear that we are experiencing it today. Again, looking at voices of the past that gave predictions or commentary about what could happen in the future. It's so wise to look back and hear these comments and these warnings and these 
statements that are made that kind of speak to us today that once a government entity is set up, it's going to continue to exist. And if it's not doing its job, uh, many times an alternative governmental organization exists, but the old one never goes away. We've heard this over and over again by conservatives in Congress trying to get rid of the Department of Education, Department of Energy, um, departments across the board that are unnecessary, intrusive in people's lives, is not bringing real value, and just write out regulation after regulation. After all, they hire these tens of thousands of people, and every one of them feels in order to make their impact, they have to write a piece of legislation. So that's the danger of what's going on uh, in governmental organizations that are set up and what happened out of the New Deal. We are still suffering from many of the organizations and structures that were set up during the New Deal that have lasted now um, 60, 70, 80 years later. So, Dr. Freeman, tell us a little bit more about this idea of governments replacing organizations that are failing, uh, but they never get rid of the old organization. You just set up a new structure or move some of the job responsibilities someplace else. The Federal Reserve system was established to prevent the bank kind of bank runs and bank failures that happened during the Great Depression. But they made it worse, much worse, by not doing what they were setting up to do. They were supposed to provide liquidity, and instead they reduced liquidity. The quantity of money in the United States fell by a third between 1929 and 1933. The Federal Reserve System at all times during that period had the power to prevent that decline. And it was established for the purpose of preventing that from happening. It didn't do it. And so what happened? The Federal Reserve System wasn't abolished, unfortunately. But the Federal Deposit Insurance was created to do what the Federal Reserve System had been supposed to do, to prevent bank runs. Well, Dr. Freeman, you're concerned about the Federal Reserve having failed... Uh, in uh, dealing with the Depression when they were set up to prevent that kind of a thing happening. We're kind of seeing the reverse of that today, where the Federal Reserve has been pumping money in the uh, QE1, QE2, quantitative easing, they called it. They're pumping more money into the system, and only now are they trying to take that out, which is causing us to move into a recession, certainly a significant downturn, but to quarters of negative GDP growth has always been considered a recession. So while the media doesn't call it a recession, certainly the families are calling it a recession because prices of goods are going up and uh, gasoline and and groceries and insurance costs, everything that uh, affects the individual's uh, kitchen table finances is being impacted by the change in the uh, Federal Reserve. They're now raising interest rates to try to shut down the economy after a decade of pushing more and more money into the system, some of which may have been needed during the COVID issue, but now they're continuing to uh, exacerbate the problems, and uh, they're, they're, they, they seem to swing in one direction or the other to the extreme and uh, impact the American people and give us sort of a whipsaw on on the economics of our own lives. So tell me a little bit more about what you think about government agencies and where they're going and how can we prevent this kind of situation from continuing to happen over over again or how do we address what we are seeing today with 
too much money in the system. The problem with government is not in the things it tries, but in the absence of any mechanism for recognizing error. The, what you need, what the private system abounds in, is survival of the fittest. What the governmental system abounds in is expansion of the mistakes. And there's no mechanism for eliminating governmental agencies which either have no longer are needed or have behaved perversely. If you try to think back and ask yourself, how many government agencies can you think of that have ever been abolished? I thought you could count those on the fingers of one hand. Well, for our audience out there, the words of wisdom that he's talking about from an economic standpoint and the failures of the government that created uh, recession, depressions, and now the expansion of money in the current system. But his words go beyond that about government agencies being set up and not being accountable. Aren't we seeing that today in the FBI and the CIA and Department of Justice? I mean, all of the organizations of government today seem to have had some level of corruption based upon the political power that is in place. So they're not going to go away. They're not being reformed. They're not being investigated. And something needs to change. So we are in a much worse situation than the economic issues that Milton Friedman talks about. But his words of warning about governmental agencies growing and and making errors, even if they were well-intended errors, continues to today. Well, let's take a break, and I want to come back, and I want to do more of the interview with uh, Dr. Friedman about his thoughts on economics and governmental policies. Be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking with Dr. Milton Friedman, the noted economist. And Dr. Freeman is one of those wise people who has insights from his perspective and particularly his expertise is in the economics. But he, the issues he talks about and the philosophy he sets about government involvement in our lives goes beyond economics. But I want to go back and continue to develop this discussion around his ideas of free market. He certainly is a free market person. In fact, he would like as few restrictions and regulations and government oversight and laws that restrict uh, 
the free market in any way. So let's go back and talk to him about the free market. Do we have one? Do we not have one? And who are the uh, the people who would, some might classify as the biggest enemies of the free market and allowing it to develop the way uh, Dr. Friedman thinks it should? Now, we don't have a free market. Don't kid yourself. And the biggest enemies of a free market, the two biggest enemies of the free market are two separate groups, my academic colleagues and business people. Their business people are enemies of free markets, not friends. They, uh, the, the, the academic people are all in favor of freedom for themselves, except even now they aren't even in favor of that with this politically correct nonsense that's going around. But historically, academic people have always been in favor of freedom for themselves. They want to be able to say what they want, write what they want, do whatever research they want. But they're all against freedom for everybody else. They think that they know better what's good for the poor people, and the poor people do. They think they can run the economy better than the businesses can. Okay, Dr. Friedman, I can understand this first group, the academics, the professors. Uh, they want freedom of speech on their part, although, like you say, with the current politically correct environment that's been going on for a long time, they're trying to shut down any academics that disagree with them. So there is um, a reversal of the open free market of ideas in the, um, in the universities and in the academic environment. But I don't quite get the enemy of free market being the businessmen. Certainly, my thought initially would be that they are supporters of the free market. So tell me um, how business um, is uh, anti-free market. The business people are just the opposite. They're all in favor of freedom for everybody else. And at the drop of a hat, you can get any leading businessman to give you an man to give you an eloquent speech on the virtues of free market. But when it comes to their own business, they want to go down to Washington and get a special tariff to protect their business. They want a special tax deduction. They want a tax subsidy. When Chrysler's on the verge of failing, which it should have done, it should have been allowed to fail, Chrysler goes down and, and uh, uh, exercises political influence to try to get the government to lend it money to subsidize. So businessmen in general, not all, there have been some notable exceptions, and I don't want to include everybody, just as not all intellectuals are in that class. But in the main, most businessmen are enemies of free markets. So I kind of understand that. Certainly big business will try to carve out a marketplace and restrict competition, and uh, the government will subsidize companies at times or even cities or other municipalities like New York over years uh, and other places where the government will step in to try to save them. So, yes, um, I'm typically against big business, big government, big anything, even big religion in my perspective. But tell me about who the winners are. Who, who comes out ahead in a free market? Um, that really is what is the engine behind the need for a free market and why it is such a, a fantastic system for raising up the middle class. The real beneficiaries of free markets are the uh, invisible man, the small, small cons the consumer, the uh, ordinary worker. Those are the real people who benefit from free markets. But unfortunately... They don't have the kind of political clout that a PAC 
political action committee from big business has. So tell us, Dr. Friedman, what are the seen and unseen effects of government intervention? Um, some of us feel it all the time, but we really don't know or completely understand or have the insight that you do. So tell us a little bit more about the effects of government intervention in so many different areas of our life these days. The most, What happens in economics over and over again is that there are two sets of effects of any action. The immediately visible effects and the widespread invisible effects. And the widespread invisible effects are often much more important than the visible ones. But people don't see them. Okay, so there's a seen and unseen impact of government intervention. Can you give me an example to kind of clarify that for, for myself and the audience? Let me give you very simple examples. We have a quota on the amount of sugar that can be imported from various countries. The the visible effect of that is that there are about a couple hundred thousand growers of beet sugar who uh, benefit greatly from it, who are able to keep on growing beet sugar. They don't benefit so greatly because most of the money goes into paying the expenses of growing the beets. And indeed, if there were no such quota, they would find something else to do. But who believe in in the short run? appear, the visible effect is that they are able to have a market they would otherwise not have. The invisible effect is that every consumer in the United States pays twice as much for the sugar he or she buys as a world price. Now, you're a consumer. How much attention to the fact do you pay to the fact that you pay twice as much for sugar as you ought to? Is the fact that you pay twice as much for sugar as you ought to going to lead you to go down to Washington to testify against the sugar quota? But are the beet sugar farmers going to go down to Washington to testify in favor of the sugar quota? It's a typical example of the seen versus the unseen. The concentrated visible versus the dispersed invisible. Dr. Friedman, we talk about that the United States is a representative democracy, but it's also, it's ruled by the majority that wins uh, those seats in the House and the Senate and the presidency. So if we've got a majority-ruled country, how does this factor into the idea that they're going to take special interest on these very small groups, whether it's the sugar growers or it's some other uh, farming group or some other industry or electrical or, um, you know, gasoline-powered engines or uh, or um, uh, solar panels, whatever it is. How does that work in your viewpoint uh, from the political perspective? We talk about this, or we, about a majority government. It is a majority government, but it's a very funny kind of a majority. It's a majority made up of a whole bunch of minorities. You've got one-tenth of one percent of the people who are beet sugar growers, they're part of this majority. You've got another two-tenths of a percent, uh, two, maybe one or two percent of the people who are in the textile industry. And they make us pay twice the world price for shirts and for other things because of textile tariffs and uh, textile agreement around the world. And so down the line, you've got all these specialists. You've got labor unions. You've got these and those. Each one separately is a little minority. But they all get together. Each minority is more interested in its own little problem than in what happens for the rest of the country, and so it's willing to give its vote to the other things. If they'll give it, it's a, it's a case of log rolling. 
So what we have is a log-rolling majority in which the majority of the people are not, in fact, represented. So what you're pointing out, even back so many years ago, is that we may have a majority rule in this country, but the majority is made up of all these little splinter special interest groups that go to Washington and get their protective tariff or get their subsidy. And that is how the government's uh, majority, the political majorities are created. And the middle class, the working people, and even the poor people who are being so adversely affected by almost anything the government does, they're always the first ones really to get hurt the most, um, that their voice is not being heard. Can you give us an example of how that's obviously the case of what's going on back at the time you're talking about it and in today's world as well. Is there any doubt in your mind? Suppose you were able to get an effective poll from the people at large on this question. The government imposes quotas on the import of sugar. The result of that is that X thousand farmers are able to grow beet sugar who otherwise would not, and that you are paying twice the world price for sugar. Are you in favor of this? Is there any doubt to you in your mind that a majority would say they're opposed to? I get the point that you're making, Dr. Freeman, on the um, uh, sugar example. It may be an insignificant, relatively small expense that all of us are paying double on. And if we actually act and vote, we'd probably say, no, it doesn't make any sense. But can you bring it home a little closer to the real uh, major issue that would affect household lives? Give, give me an example of uh, maybe it's education, but give me a, a stronger example as to how government interference affects our lives and our children's lives. Of course, the most socialized industry in the United States is the military. But next to the military, the most socialized industry in the United States is schooling. Nine out of ten of youngsters, leave for a moment the colleges and universities aside, although it's true for them too. But let's take stick to elementary and secondary schooling. Everybody recognizes that over the course of decades, the amount of money that's going into that in real terms after adjustment for inflation has been going up per student very sharply. And everybody recognizes that the quality of education has been going down. There's not the slightest doubt. All socialist enterprises are the same. If you take them in Europe, whether you take them in Russia, in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, or in the United States, socialized enterprises produce poor quality products at high prices with with but confer special benefits on small groups. That's a characteristic. Well, we certainly see this today with failing schools and inner cities, and it's growing across the country with changing the curriculum to awokeness to uh, politically correct topics, and they're getting away from the reading, writing, and arithmetic and talking about gender identity and and uh, uh, critical race theory and all sorts of things. So you're exactly right. Education is where government has failed and continues to fail even today. So your words are very prescient. How would you change uh, the educational system in the United States to get away from these kinds of uh, government actions that are not working with parents but against parents? One proposal for privatizing education, for improving it, is a voucher system, which has been gotten a lot of attention, which is simply the idea that parents should be able to decide what school their children go to. What you should do is to say to every parent, if you send your child to a public school, to a government school, it's costing the taxpayer 
So if you decide to send him to any other kind of a school, we'll give you a voucher by which you can uh, choose any school you want, governmental, private, non-profit, profit-making, uh, Catholic, Jewish, Protestant, whatever, any school you want. The parents should have the choice. Those of us who are in the upper-income classes have that choice now because we can afford to pay twice for schooling, once through taxes and once directly through tuition. The people who are hurt by the present system are the poor people, and the people who are hurt worst are those in the inner cities who cannot get a decent education for their children. Wow, I know you said these words decades ago, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and I want to delve into this a little bit more in our next segment. We're running up against a hard break. Let's take a commercial break, and we'll be right back and talk to Dr. Friedman about the educational needs and how they should change in this country, even more so today, given what's going on in our educational system, than even when he was speaking about it so long ago. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are continuing a discussion from the past, from one of the great thinkers of our time, Dr. Milton Freeman. As an economist, he looks at a lot of issues, obviously, through that prism, but he is a wise man who has talked about so many other social issues. And in particular, what we're drilling down on right now, at the end of the last session, I want to continue with it, is the whole idea of government schools and how it is failing our young people. And the last segment, he talked about how wealthier people can afford to pay both the taxes to support the public system and then to opt out and send their kids to private schools and have that additional expense. And that the people at the lower end of the spectrum, economic spectrum, are the ones that are hurt the worst because they're locked into a government school. I've always likened it to the idea of that if the government said you can only go to the grocery store in your neighborhood, that's your only choice. And regardless of how bad the food is or how bad the delivery is or how bad the stocking of the shelves are, you have no choice but to go to that school, that grocery store. And that's what's happening with schools today. People are forced to go to schools, even though if they were given the option, they would move away and go to another school, which might make the bad schools actually have to improve themselves because their funding would dry up under the voucher system. So Dr. Raymond tells more about the voucher system, which is starting to take hold in this country, voucher systems, um, charter schools, alternative education programs, but the pure voucher system that you've described, I'm not familiar, has taken place anywhere, but it's a great idea. Tell us a little bit more about the details of the voucher system. The voucher system, there have been some, uh, quite a large number of public opinion polls about how people feel toward 
various proposals, including the voucher system. In every poll that has been taken, the group which gives the largest majority in favor of the voucher system are the blacks. The blacks vote two to one in favor of the voucher system. There is not a single black leader who has come out in favor of the voucher system. I once tried to persuade, tried to persuade Jesse Jackson, and I got him started on it. He acted as if he had never heard of the idea, but of course he had. Oh, it's a wonderful, splendid idea. Where do you send your own children? Well, several of them are going to private schools, of course. At any rate, you never heard another word from Jesse Jackson in favor of the voucher system. Why? Because where do the black leaders get their political clout? From being able to appoint people to school boards? From being able to get jobs in the school system for some of their people? By They can get support out of the voters by voting for more money for education? But if once a voucher system were adopted, they would no longer have any political clout. And that is why every attempt to get a voucher system, and there have been many of them, has been destroyed and frustrated by the people with a vested interest in not having it, in particular the officials of the teachers' trade unions, of the state employees' unions, and the political people like Jesse Jackson and other such political leaders. This sounds like the perfect example of why leaders don't even support their own constituents if there is money and support to keep them in power. And that's what's been happening in Washington and across the country, especially in recent days around the educational system. They give so much money to politicians, both at the federal and state level, that it's almost impossible to sort of weed out the wokeness that's going on. And you've given an example of how Improving the education of black students in inner city areas is not even supported by black leaders. Is that the point you were trying to make? The reason I cite this example, and I think it's so dramatic, is because because of the unwillingness of the black leaders to support something of which the major beneficiaries would be the people they're supposedly representing. So the warning that I'm hearing you give, not just about government and education or other areas that maybe you've mentioned, is that what today it's all about is money. How do I access money? How do I tap into the money to keep me in power? Is that what you're also saying? There's a pot of money there in every one of these cases. And just as bees will go to honey, people will go to a pot of money. And the people who will be most effective in getting control of that pot money are people who are trying to grab it for themselves rather than people who are trying to spend it on behalf of somebody else. Everybody wants to spend somebody else's money. And nobody spends somebody else's money as carefully as he spends his own. That's a fundamental principle. Okay, so you're a smart guy. You're a wise man. You see the picture, the broader picture, that many of us don't see because we're too busy in our own lives trying to keep our job and keep our family happy, the financial support that, that we need to get ahead, trying to worry about kids and all the other things that can affect our children that are going on in society. Uh, we don't think about planning for the future or how we can really change. So what are some of your ideas as to how we can change this kind of disastrous policy and politics that's going on in our country. How do we 
How do we get control of it as average citizens? There's only one way, in my opinion, in which you can you can exercise control over this process, and that's by effective constitutional limitation backed by public opinion. If it's not backed by public opinion, it will do no good. We have free speech because of the First Amendment of the Constitution. I would be, in our book, Free to Choose, we listed the amendments we would like to see in the Constitution. They're much broader than that. Such as that Congress shall make no laws prohibiting any trades between consenting individuals with respect to goods that it's legal to trade. Now, that would eliminate all tariffs. It would eliminate the sugar quota. That you may not see offhand that it would, but it would if you think about it a little. Because individuals include foreign individuals and not only domestic individuals. So, no, no, I would really like much broader constitutional limitations. And there are many other things you can think of. For example, you might have a constitutional amendment that nobody can be elected to Congress and Senate unless he's more than 60 years of age. That would eliminate the people, the possibility of people being elected to Congress in order to be able to get benefits after they leave Congress. You see, that's the defect. I happen to be in favor of term limitation proposals simply because maybe that's a possible thing you can get. But the defect of term limitation proposals is you have young people who enter Congress and they're limited to 12 years. They'll use those 12 years to get brownie points with people on the outside who will give them a job later. So it would be much more effective to limit the uh, legislature to people or to make it a part-time job or an unpaid job. Anyway, there are lots of solutions. I'm not going to go through the solutions here. Uh, my, our books, Free to Choose, and uh, Earlier One Capitalism and Freedom are much better from that point of view than what I can say here. But what I will say, you will not solve these problems by taking them up on a one-by-one basis. You will never get rid of the sugar quotas by having sugar consumers testify against them. You might get a constitutional amendment that there shall be no tariffs or other interferences with foreign trade, which lumps everything together so people can see that they have a real interest in it. But if you try to do it piece by piece, you'll get killed every time. Well, you certainly make some great points on politics and the way you view it from a conservative-slash-libertarian viewpoint. Certainly, your ideas about education and and additions to the Bill of Rights um, or some sort of legislation to attack those areas you briefly mentioned here and that are a complete list is listed in your in your book, uh, Free to Choose. Um, I want to get back to your uh, economics, though, and the monetary policies that you would propose, because we are having such problems with the Federal Reserve, who has pumped so much money into the system that we have this dramatic inflation that's going on, and they're trying to back it off by raising interest rates. So the human decision kind of gives us a whipsaw effect here. How how would you approach um, this? Um, you know, some of us would just as soon get rid of the Federal Reserve and replace it with something more um, attuned to following uh, proper economics and not being lagging behind either at the front end or the back end of a recession. What is your uh, thinking about monetary policy? I would like to get rid of the Federal Reserve, too. I would like to have money controlled by a computer. However, that's not what's happening. And I'm a realist. (laughs) You're going to have a Federal Reserve system. And therefore, it's relevant to ask, given that there is a Federal Reserve system, even though it would be a better world if we could get rid of them, how should 
Federal Reserve operate. So I have been concerned with monetary policy by trying to see how to make it less harmful than it is likely to be. I don't want to say that government, it's necessary. There are certain things that it is essential for government to do. I'm not an anarchist. I believe in a government, but a limited government. And the government should be limited, in my opinion, to very simple functions. Number one, to defending the country against foreign enemies. I have tried for a long time to see how to make national defense a private enterprise, and I have never succeeded. It's easy to see how to privatize schooling, but I don't know how to privatize national defense. So I'm reconciled to the fact that we're going to have to pay twice as much as we should have to pay in order to get an effective national defense. Because anything government does, on the average, there's some things that are more, some less. On the average, anything government does costs twice as much as if it were being done by private enterprise. So one function of government is to protect the country against foreign enemies, national defense. A second function of government, and one which it performs very, very badly, is to protect the individual citizen against abuse and coercion by other citizens, to keep you from being hit over the head, mugged on the street, your house broken into, and so on. And I believe that the government performs that function very ineffectively because it's doing so many things it has no business doing. A third function of government, a very important function, is to define the rules of the game we play. What's private property? If an airplane flies 10,000 feet over your house, is he violating your private property? If, if he flies 10 feet over your house, is he violating your private property? There's nothing natural about where the line should be drawn. So we have to have some mechanism for making the rules about that, and that is an appropriate government function. And fourth, it's appropriate for government to provide a mechanism for adjudicating disputes about the meaning of those rules, a judicial system. Those are the four essential functions of government, in my opinion, and those are the only functions that are essential. There may be some other areas in which, if you started with nothing more than that, you might government might conceivably do more good than harm, but from where you are now, if you could only move back in that direction, it would be marvelous. There's no way you're going to do it. The best you can hope for is that you can hold down government, keep it where it is, and let the private economy expand so that government becomes a smaller and smaller fraction of it. And even that is a very optimistic expectation, though it's possible. Well, I certainly like your list of the four critical items that government should be providing. And a lot of the rest of it is bureaucracy that's grown up over the many, many decades. Again, um, starting with the enormous expansion by FDR and those institutions uh, continue to exist and spawn off additional institutions. So let's take a quick break, and I want to come back, and I want to talk a little bit more about politics and particularly about economics and monetary policy, where Dr. Friedman is a Nobel Prize winner and in economics, and I think his words are extremely important for all of us to remember over the eons of time. They still ring true. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. It's a museum, it's a showroom, it's an experience. The Classic Auto Mall in Morgantown, Pennsylvania is 336,000 square feet of rare custom and specialty automobiles on display and on consignment. From the earliest production cars to modern exotics, Classic Auto Mall is a feast for the eyes and the memories. Stroll through time in any season in this climate-controlled facility that you simply have to see to believe. Admission is free. Just remember to bring comfortable shoes. Welcome back to this final segment of Healthcare Insight. You're listening to America's Web Radio, and we are continuing and finalizing this week our discussion with um, the economist extraordinaire uh, Milton Friedman. He has been a guiding light for conservative uh, philosophy on monetary policy and great ideas on um, limiting government. Uh, con- the conservative movement uh, owes a great debt to uh, Milton Friedman for his thoughts and his direction in uh, conservative philosophy, economics, policy, and many other areas. He's been an inspiration to many. I highly recommend his book. It's been in the market now for decades, but it's still valid and still gives us the basic ideas of conservative uh, monetary policy and limited government. It's called Free to Choose. It's one of the books I read early in my career that really helped uh, form and solidify my conservative uh, beliefs. But let's go back for this last segment and uh, talk to uh, Dr. Friedman about um, his core expertise in uh, monetary policy. So, Professor, if you would tell us a little bit more about what monetary policy is uh, to help clarify for our audience some of the basic principles that they really need to know to be uh, true conservatives fiscally. But going back to monetary policy, what is monetary policy concerned with? It's concerned fundamentally with what happens to the quantity of money. What's money? There's no, again, no natural definition of money. The first thing, money is whatever you use to engage in transactions, whatever it is that people are willing to accept, not because they want it, but because they know that somebody else will accept it in return for something they want. And you know, in the history of the world, You can hardly name a commodity that has not been used as money at one time or another. There's an island in the Pacific which uses great big stones as money, the island of Yap. There are parts of Africa and India which for many centuries used uh, used, uh, cowrie shells, little shells that you pick up on the beach as money. The colonies, uh, Virginia and uh, North Carolina and so on, those southern group colonies, for many years used tobacco as money. But, of course, the most the thing that has mostly been used as money, historically, have been silver and gold. But we've gotten beyond that, and now we use, a species, we use pieces of paper as money. 
pieces of paper in your pocket. The equivalent of those are deposits you have in your bank on which you think you can write checks and other people will accept your checks. Or you can go down to an ATM and withdraw some cash. So there's a sum of the paper you carry around in your pocket and in one or another class of deposits. And there are very different classes is money. And the question is, who determines how much money there is? And the answer is, in our present system, there are... Eighteen. Uh, there are 19 people who sit around a table in Washington once every two weeks who have the power, the unlimited power, to double the quantity of money over the next year or to cut it in half over the next year. Those 19 people are the seven members of the Federal Reserve Board and the 12 presidents of the Federal Reserve Banks, of the regional Federal Reserve Banks. So, Professor, let me get this straight. 19 people in a country of over 330 million get to make a decision on how much money is in the system, which means how much money people have to earn, how much is available to buy goods, and sort of economics 101 that people like me can basically understand is that if there's a doubling of the amount of money in the system, then Everybody's going to get um, a bigger share of the dollars, but the value of those dollars is going to be decreased, which causes inflation. A lot of money chasing the same amount of goods um, means that people will bid up the price of those goods. So that's what we're seeing today, only it seems to be exacerbated that we not only have more money given the Federal Reserve's actions these days, uh, we have fewer goods because of the supply uh, distribution system problems. We have increasing costs because we are regulating uh, energy to an extreme that means we're cutting down on the, our energy production. So we've got more money chasing fewer goods, which drives up inflation. So we can all see now the power of the Federal Reserve. If they expand the money system, they create inflation. If they contract the money system, then that can be detrimental. And I think that's sort of what happened during the Recession. So do they really have sort of an unfettered uh, capability and power to make these kinds of changes that affect every citizen's lives? And, and we hardly even know what those decisions are. A few people keep up with it in great detail, I'm sure. But as far as the average citizen, we probably don't know what the outcome uh, of those meetings are, whether they're expanding or they're contracting or changing interest rates, whatever. So tell us about this power that this group has and what could come of having so much power in such a limited number of hands? They have the unquestioned power to do this. And it was the way they exercised that power during the Great Depression that was responsible for the depth of the Depression. It was the way they exercised that power during the 1970s that was responsible for the inflation during the 1970s. And is fundamentally responsible for the savings and loan debacle. So how they exercise that power makes an enormous amount of difference. And in my opinion, I shouldn't say opinion, because I have spent much of my life studying this. Uh, I've written or co-authored a series of books dealing with the, well, a major book dealing with the monetary history of the United States and others. So this is an opinion, but it's an informed opinion that is based on some evidence and work. The Federal Reserve, over the whole of its existence, has done much more harm than good. Well, Dr. Friedman, earlier in this 
hour, you talked about bureaucratic organizations, institutions being established and have no accountability. Uh, can you talk about the accountability of the Federal Reserve leaders, those people who make those decisions when they've made the kind of errors and, and pushed our economy too far one way or the other, inflation too far one way or the other? What, what accountability have they taken on when they've made these kinds of mistakes? When times are good and prosperity, they say, oh, we're responsible for what good times you have. In bad times, they say, oh, the times are bad in spite of us. We did everything we could to offset it. Even in the depth of the Depression in 1932 and 1933, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board was saying, you cannot imagine how much worse things would have been if we hadn't done our duty. So, as I say, this has been a system which has done far more harm than good, and I am concerned with the question of how can we rein them in so that they do less harm and more good. And the problem is to exercise accountability, to make them accountable. Well, I'm certainly glad that you're trying to figure out how to make them accountable because you earlier said how hard that is. And it almost never happens that bureaucrats, institutions like the Federal Reserve and other organizations within our federal government are ever held accountable. So what are some of the suggestions you would make on the Federal Reserve issue to hold them more accountable? And there are various ways in which this could be done. The main thing I've always argued for, and I'm not sure it's the best way, but what I've always argued for is requiring them to keep the quantity of money growing at a steady and relatively slow rate. Uh, now, that's, they've departed from that, and every single mistake has been connected with a departure from that. Uh, almost always. After the, There are one or two occasions on which the departure was justified, but most of the time it has not been. And the problem is, how do you get that rule in law, and how do you make it accountable? How do you make it in the self-interest of the members of the board to follow the rule? But that's the essential problem, is to impose rules which will keep the quantity of money from either growing very rapidly or declining very rapidly. Either the one or the other is bad. If it grows too rapidly, you have inflation. Well, Professor Friedman, um, maybe you can help us interpret what the little we do here through the general media about the Federal Reserve and what they're doing. And they don't seem to talk straight to the general public. In other words, they, they make up things like, They'll talk about the um, inflation rate recently. They said, well, just transitory, don't worry about it. Or or uh, quantitative easing is a new term they came up with to expand the money supply and went far beyond in deficit financing governmental programs and not worrying about the offset in any monetary policy. So how do you know what to believe uh, with uh, outcomes and statements from the Federal Reserve? They're always shifting their rhetoric. You have to distinguish rhetoric from substance. They've, always, they've often talked about paying attention to money growth, but they almost never have done so. And that's because they come out of a banker mentality. And the banker mentality is to look at the Fed as a credit instrument and as having something to do with interest rates. It's a major mistake, in my opinion. And I believe the Fed can influence interest rates, but it can't determine them. But it can determine what the quantity of money is. That's the one thing it can really control. And it ought to be judged on the basis of how well it does that one thing. So we know that for years now, the Federal Reserve has been pumping more money into the system. And now they're trying to take it back out. So we're getting whipsawed. So 
Does putting money into the system uh, improve the economic um, uh, value to individuals and families? It doesn't have a positive effect on our economic life. It eliminates a negative effect. Fluctuations in the rate of growth of the quantity of money produce uncertainty. They go up and prices start to go up. And no individual businessman knows whether the price rise is because his product is in more demand and he should reduce it or because there's more money around and there's going to be general inflation. He won't learn about that. He won't learn about that for months. And so what matters for the economy is what happens to relative prices and relative demands. What you want is a system under which if people suddenly decided that they want uh, more, uh, they want more computers and fewer automobiles. That's reflected in prices, relative prices. The price of computers goes up. The price of automobiles goes down. The producers of computers have an incentive to produce more computers. The producers of automobiles have an incentive to produce fewer automobiles. That's what the price system is like, and that's what it's for. Now, the effect of these fluctuations in the quantity of money is to introduce static into the signals that are coming out from the price system. Things so you can't hear anything very clearly. And that's exactly what these fluctuations in the money supply do. do. A stable rate of monetary growth would not be a positive good. It would simply set a stable background against which the market could operate, and it would eliminate the static, the uncertainty that these short-term movements introduce. Well, Professor Friedman, you have given our audience, and certainly myself, a really good lesson, simple overview in layman's terms, how money supply can affect our lives and how what we have experienced over the last number of years with this expanding money supply by the Federal Reserve, they call it QE1, 2, and 3, have created the environment for this serious inflation that's really gotten out of hand uh, and is exacerbated by the uh, distribution system limitations that we're in, by the increasing regulations of this Biden administration, and changes of policies that were put in place during COVID. Now, you said there are some times when the expansion is necessary, and I think uh, what happened during COVID to keep businesses open to be able to pay employees who couldn't come in because of this national pandemic, global pandemic issue, uh, may have had its place, but we continued with that expansion far too long, and the Federal Reserve took too long to try to stop the expansion of the monetary supply. Well, I hope our audience has enjoyed looking back in time to the wise men of our history and the warnings that they gave, many of which were not heeded and we're now suffering today. So join us again next week when we'll try to do some of the same kind of analysis and tap into the wisdom of the ages in trying to see how they predicted what might be going wrong with our country and our policies and our economics. So join us again next week for Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.